if, after every challenge and lawsuit has run its course, Joe Biden is elected president of the United States, his running mate, California Senator Kamala Harris, will make history as the first U.S. vice president who is female, African-American, and Asian-American. Vi Lyles made history herself in 2017 when she became mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina, the first African-American woman to be elected to that position. She easily won re-election two years later, and her profile has only risen since then, presiding over a growing New South City, the largest in the state and 15th largest in the country. It was set to host the Republican National Convention, though Lyles and most of the city's elected officials are Democrats, but that was before COVID. Still, North Carolina has continued to be a political player, a battleground visited and fought over by national candidates of both parties and still not called in the current race at the time of taping. Now, Charlotte has had its challenges, some that echo those of many big American cities, protests and debates over police reform and frustrations that all its citizens don't share in its economic growth and opportunity. Mayor Vile Lyles has a lot on her plate, so we're happy she's taken time to join the show. Welcome to Equal Time, Mayor Lyles. Thank you, Mary, for having me. Um, it's always great to join you in any reporting. Ah, well, we have been very busy. I want to just jump right in since, as you know, we're still counting in uh, as of uh, a press uh, going to record this. So are you surprised by the tight margins of both the presidential and the Senate races in North Carolina? I, I you know, I don't, I'm not surprised. I would hope have hoped that it have been different, but it didn't surprise me, particularly because of the amount of money pushed in those last three weeks. Um, I think the president visited the state, it felt like every other day, but I'm sure it was just about eight or nine times. And so there was a real um, effort by, I think, the president's um, campaign to make sure that his um, followers and voters were really excited. Um, you could see that by the rallies, whereas um, I think the Biden campaign followed the pandemic or, or COVID rules and regulations and didn't have those kinds of major events. So I'm not surprised, um, but was hopeful that it would have been different. We're still counting anyway. Yeah. What do you think about that Senate race? I know they had a lot of hopes in helping that tip the Senate. Well, that last those last few weeks for um, Tillis, his I don't. I think he said, "I am in charge," or "I funded these ads," or "approved these ads." But the ads were really, really um, sharp. His campaign was one big lie. Here in North Carolina, the truth still matters. But it was all hypocrisy. Cal Cunningham was caught in a sexting scandal with a woman who is not his wife. They were um, contemporary. They appealed to, I think, both women and men, and particularly our veterans. And I think that um, Cal Cunningham made a strategic decision not to respond to that. And that decision had consequences. Yeah, you mean his sexting little scandal there. Well, even just responding to the um, lack of character um, ads that um, were being done by the Tillis campaign. One of the undertones has been talking about race, racial justice. So can you Talk to us a little bit about the role you think that race played in this election. It's it's not just race 
um, because I think that we've always had um, really good participation. But in this case, I think what really played a large part in the turnout of African-Americans was the um, George Floyd incidents and the Black Lives Matter movement and the accusations by the administration that there was um, lawlessness. And, and I really believe that North Carolina um, performed very well in response to those issues. And I think that that's why we have these outstanding um, ballots right now in North Carolina. And that's why they haven't been able to call our state for um, one of the winners. Yeah. How do you think the role of race played in the campaigning by the candidates? Well, clearly, um, the Biden campaign wrote a plan that was specific to African-American entrepreneurship, specific to um, restorative justice for African-Americans. It was also as clear to, in my opinion, that the Trump campaign um, was using race as a fear tactic um, to call people that were protesting um, peacefully, um, to say that they were being unlawful and riots, um, to actually call out Democrat, as he said, um, cities, to say that, that it was only happening in Democrat cities where the lawlessness was occurring because of the participation by um, the Democratic Party to include everybody in its um, tent. I, it, was, it was particularly difficult. The racism um, of the racial intent um, was particularly difficult for anyone living in my kind of world um, from the campaign from the Trump administration. Well, you lead a majority-minority city, and uh, obviously, I know we've it's had its share of protests for racial justice. And you you spoke about the fear, but do you think any part of President Trump's message resonated here? Uh, because we did see that little uptick. Uh, nationwide in support from African-Americans, especially Black men. And how do you explain that? Well, I I am not a campaign strategist, but as the person that sees all of what they present, I thought the ads um, talking about Joe Biden's um, crime bills from when he was in the Senate were particularly effective when he talked about the, um, you know, who Trump's ad said, well, who are they talking about? And they showed Black men. And that was something that I think the Biden campaign um, had to really cope with. And I think that that may have shifted the um, uptick or may be have caused the uptick in um, African-American voters, especially men. Um, I also believe that I don't want a perfect person in office. I want someone that has gone through trials and tribulations and resolved to change. And that was the way I saw Biden, is that while he had that um, accusation around the crime bill, I wish that we had had the ability to really say, but look what the difference is now versus the current president who is accusing us on one hand of lawlessness and rioting and um, calling out militia people to stand by and then saying, well, don't vote for this man because of something that he did 20, 40 years ago. And you didn't see much on some of Trump's past, the ads on the Central Park Five, that came up in one of the debates. Exactly. Um, that, yes, they should have. I think that the Biden campaign overall tried to speak to people. 
I think that Trump's campaign was speaking truly to his base and that base being people that um, really are afraid of some of these issues around race and urban communities. Well, this year has been challenging for many, for many reasons, uh, pandemic, uh, economic uh, upheaval, so much. But for Black women, we've had our share of challenges. We've had the lows of Breonna Taylor and the highs of the nomination of Kamala Harris, Senator Harris. So how do you feel about the possible history-making achievement of Senator Harris as vice president? Well, one of the things about Senator Harris that I've admired is her ability to relate to um, people that are in the justice system. Her experience and her background will really allow, um, as um, the Biden and Harris ticket um, is finally um, standing there being sworn in, it will allow her to use her expertise to start talking about justice, restorative justice, and helping people that need a second chance. And there are a number of things that have to be done from some of the smallest things that um, prevent people from getting jobs or housing after they are in re-entering society um, that she will know a lot about and can really have an impact. So I'm looking forward for her perspective, not just in the Justice Department, but also when we talk about housing and we talk about jobs, um, from being from California where the state is um, obviously racially and ethnically diverse, I think she'll bring a lot of that strength to um, the White House. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, this is the part where I call you Vi. <laughs> and <laughs> as a Black woman, uh, personally, and you're a pioneer as well, uh, first female African-American mayor in this growing city. So how will you feel, you think, if if it does go the way it's trending and She's taking that oath. If it goes the way that it's trending, I would like to say to the president and vice president that Charlotte stands ready to participate in the healing for this country. Um, I have to say that serving as a mayor, you are very, very close to the people that are, and your your every decision, every Monday night when we make decisions, we have an impact on people's lives here. But we need to make sure that our state and federal government have that same understanding that every action that they take has a consequence for someone that lives in our city. And I want to be a part of having that opportunity for that conversation to say, here's the way that you can help us. You can help us lower the 25% cost of transportation for people in minimum wage jobs. You can help us with infrastructure, making sure that we get the federal taxes back that we send to Washington, D.C. You can help us by having healing in our Justice Department. And I guess, you know, Mary, I'm going to say, Mary, my biggest wish is that we get a reinstatement of the Voting Rights Act. I think that what we're going through now is a consequence of that inability of the Congress to pass a voting rights bill that makes a difference in this country. I was there that when you won the first term in 2017, you had your, I think, a granddaughter in each arm. Yeah, we now have three granddaughters. So this is really great. And so, you know, you achieved a lot and you were a grandmom and a mayor. And so I just want to push a little bit on in your heart personally, how you feel 
uh, about in a, a time where you've had we've had things like Breonna Taylor, but we are also seeing this person who is playing this pioneering role and kind of knowing what she's going through, you know, walking that tightrope. How do you feel about that? Mary, I am very, I, I, I will say, you know, I've lived a long life here and um, every experience that you often hear about for black women, I've gone through, I've gone through times when someone said to me, well, you know, we've already got somebody black in this department, so you don't really need to be hired. We, you, that's just not, you, it's, you're just enough. One, that one token person. I've also gone through an experience where my son was investigated for an armed robbery. And just by the coincidence of having a receipt that was had a timestamp on it, that they stopped investigating him because he was a black boy with dreadlocks. And it's just that part. And more importantly, when my children were in school and we would have play dates in the school and sometimes they go, they have been called the N-word. And those are all very personal experiences. Um, my family has a business that's third generation and they work hard at it and they've done well, but they haven't done as well. as If they were white, they'd be in an entirely different stratosphere. So all of these things are personal to me and all of these things help um, me look at any decision I make through that lens of growing up in a segregated South, trying to determine how a progressive city can, like Charlotte, can actually make this change and, and, and to do it in a way that people will notice the difference. Hmm. Thank you for that. And I'm sitting here relating because, you know, I'm a journalist and have had a son profiled and even gone to court about it. So I, I, I like to say as black women, we don't have to always explain it. We can just kind of look at each other and know it. <laughs> happened. Oh, yeah. You, you talked about Charlotte, and it's true. I mean, we have been, this city, in the center of so much. Mayors have moved to the national stage. We saw Anthony Fox join the cabinet. And I saw you in that national uh, Biden-Harris <laughs> ad with those 14 mayors. Uh, yeah. And we were set to be one of the few cities to host conventions from both parties. Uh, you were going to have the RNC here pre-COVID. So can you talk a little bit about Charlotte and North Carolina's political future and the prominent role of the state and its leaders? You know, that's one of those um, particularly difficult um, situations that we're in right now, because when you look at our ticket, we may we haven't decided who wins the um, presidential vote, electoral votes for North Carolina, but we have elected a Democratic governor and we've also elected a Republican state legislature. And when we talk about elections having consequences, that is a particularly one, poignant one for me, because what's going to happen is that we're going to have new congressional districts drawn. And those lines, and if you remember the courts ruling on surgical precision and, you know, those kinds of comments coming out of the Republican legislature, I have worked really hard to have great relationships with the legislative leadership. And, and we've try to collaborate on issues that we have where we can find common ground. But I think that we all need to understand that Charlotte is a blue um, city in a red state with a blue governor that has limited power. Um, and the Council of State, 
um, particularly when the Republicans have the lieutenant governor, the treasurer, the superintendent, the school superintendent, and the commissioners of agriculture, insurance, and labor. All of that has an impact on what we can do and accomplish. So you have to, we now have to sort what we're trying to accomplish into what's achievable and what's aspirational and balance that effort because as a democratic city, blue and a red legislature, we're going to have to walk that delicate balance. Yeah. So you think all the talk about trending purple is a little premature? Yeah, I think for the entire state, it is. Um, For Charlotte, I think that we will continue to have um, the blue um, um, vote um, because we are a diverse city. We're not just um, a place where everybody looks alike. And I think that those things are very difficult to um, overcome. So Charlotte, I believe, along with our, I would say the 85 quarter, where you start in um, Raleigh and come down to Charlotte, you'll see that same kind of perspective of understanding urbanism requires um, some authority and requires a, a, a different way of governance often than the rest of the state. So you, as you alluded to earlier, you do have a reputation of wor- working across the aisle, both in the state and outside of North Carolina. I mean, you were appointed by Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross and Ivanka Trump, the president's daughter, to the American Workforce Policy Advisory Board. You all met in D.C. You were talking about infrastructure. Yet you are walking that tightrope because you've been criticized for some of these efforts and the decision to host the uh, RNC, which, of course, COVID intervened. That was kind of controversial. So talk a little bit about how you navigate that tightrope. You know, for me, it's not a difficult decision because every decision that I make, as I said, I look at the people that live here. Is it best for the entire community, no matter who's Republican or who's Democrat um, or no matter where we are? My job as mayor is to represent the city. And that's when I make my decision um, that, yes, we have to have consideration for every segment of our society and and every segment of our philosophy about governance. But at the end of the day, um, it ought to be something that moves our city forward, um, whether it's through um, economic prosperity, affordable housing, or infrastructure. Um, We need to work to pull our city up because if our foundation is strong, then we can be an example or a model for the rest of the state. And that's what I think we want to try to be. Um, so walking that tight work, rope, as you say, I, I don't know that I see it as a tight rope. I see it as how do I bring people together to say, overall, this is the path that we all must take to be successful in the long term. I want my legacy to be not what I did today, but what I did that will be effective for the children and the grandchildren that live in the city. What is a question, I always do this for every guest, that I have not asked you that you wish I did because you have a good answer? What I would say, the question that you should ask me is why is it important that we think about a community like Charlotte for 20 years out? Why do we have those kinds of plans? And I would say to you that the life of the city is long, long term, and that if we want to be a city where we continue to be able to 
um, make progress in for everyone that we have to think about that today. So my initiatives around um, reducing the cost of transportation for families, making sure that people have an affordable place to live, that's not just for today, it's for the future forever, I hope. Yeah, just from that a little bit, you are facing what mayors in big cities all over are, where uh, we're booming, people are moving here quite all the time, and there we have companies coming, but you do have the nagging issue of social mobility, some folks not sharing in that, housing and transportation, education, crime, other crises. So you are, as you say, the mayor of, of everyone, and but it, the problem isn't unique. Uh, so no matter who becomes the president, mayors in cities like this will be facing that. The people that are living here voted for that bridge that made Ballantyne possible. The people that live here were, their property was taken to create an interstate highway. And to say to them, that if you are here because of actions that other people took, particularly the people that um, perhaps are essential workers or or in, in jobs that don't pay a living wage, then you need to pay that back. You need to play it possible or make it possible for them to move forward. That it's not something, and this is where explaining systemic racism is sometimes hard for people to hear. They say, oh, you know, I understand racism, but that's, that's there's nothing systemic about it. And you have to explain redlining and you have to explain access to capital and all of those kinds of things that we know as our history, that in, is in our history. And you have to be able to explain that in a way that makes it possible for them to understand that they have to contribute to the welfare of all. And that's what we're doing in Charlotte with our opportunity corridors. Um, we are recreating our main streets and our African-American communities while all at the same time trying to prevent gentrification from occurring as a result of economic development. Yeah. I often, I, when you say that, the structural, I talk to people, uh, well-educated people and explain, you know, I couldn't live where I live in Myers Park that many years ago because there were restricted covenants in the deeds. And from that flowed uh, the schools, markets, roads, so many things. And they just, as you say, it's hard because they see things today and think, what's the problem? Well, and it's because we don't teach history in, in our curriculum for schools. We don't encourage people to um, desegregate our um, schools and our um, activities. Um, we become, um, a, you know, this the black side of town and the white side of town and the rich side of town and the poor side of town. Um, when you and I probably grew up, um, we lived on a street that had everybody's participation from people that maybe um, didn't have as much to people that had a lot more. But it was because we had the ability to see success um, in our neighborhoods that we sought to achieve success. And that's my learned experience is that you have to have the ability to see yourself in a different way if you expect 
um, your ability to change have to happen. And right now we're failing at that in our in so many areas of our city. Thank you so much. Uh, Mayor Lyles has been on that road. Uh, uh, and uh, do you think that you'll be taking some of this message to a national uh, audience? I just have to ask that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't ask you to ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of that one all by myself. And do you have an answer? I'll bet. I'll bet. Um, I have one of the best jobs. Um, I do have to say my daughter lives in D.C. She'd like for me to have the job as grandma full time. That's what she really likes. Oh, what a what a way to end it and what a way to kind of dodge that question. So <laughs> thank you so much, uh, Mayor Lyles, for joining us, uh, the audience on Equal Time. Thank you all for having me. And thanks for um this opportunity. What keeps me up at night? This week, you have to ask. Actually, I'm thinking about election 2020 and what it reveals about the state of the United States, divided and confused. If Joe Biden wins, will he be able to keep his promise to bring the country together? If Donald Trump prevails, Will he stop fighting his enemies, real and imagined? And can Americans overcome fear of the other long enough to plan a healthy, safe future for everyone? I'm not sure I have the answers, but that didn't stop me from trying to figure it out in my latest Roll Call column. Check it out. And let me know what keeps you up at night send me a tweet at mcurtisnc3. Thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.